This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 151. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Big announcement regarding our upcoming event, the SNN Network Canada virtual event, which is on January 6th and 7th, 2021. This morning, we shared the initial list of presenting companies. Paul and I are very excited about who will be joining us and be sure to check all of this out on the event website at canada.snn.network. We've added more speakers and sponsors on the website as well. So stay tuned as we announce more presenting companies as well as the full agenda. You do not want to miss this event. I'm too excited about it. It's really awesome. Got an incredible lineup. So be sure to register now on canada.snn.network to join us for an incredible microcap event to kick off 2021. Again, go to canada.snn.network to check everything out. Now, for this week on the SNN Podcast Network, we have a solid lineup for you. Uh, After a brief hiatus, uh, avoiding the crowd with Maj Don is back and better than ever. This week's episode welcomes guest Rich Howe of Stock Spinoff Investing. Uh, As you probably guessed, uh, uh, Maj and Rich dissect everything you want to know about investing in spinoffs. So you can check out this episode on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at avoidingthecrowd.podbean.com. We also have a really fun episode in store for you on the Investors Roundtable. This week's topic is discussing the current state of affairs with cryptocurrency and blockchain. Uh, The lineup for this panel is stacked and we have a whole lot to cover. I I hope we can cover it in the hour and a half I usually uh, uh, allocate for this recording, but uh, we, we have a lot to cover. So you can watch this episode on the SNN Network YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash SNNWire. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Liz Simi. Liz is the co-founder and CIO of Honeytree Investment Management. Her firm, Honeytree Investment Management, builds quantumental public market portfolios for institutional and select private investors looking for concentrated, high-conviction strategies with full ESG integration. As the title states, and in this interview, Liz and her firm discuss why the current ESG definition may need a bit of redefining. And she makes the argument for why ESFG formula works for them. Liz is absolutely brilliant, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing her perspective. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 151 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Liz Simi.
back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And joining me right now is an individual who we we were originally, uh, she was slated to potentially speak at our August show, but uh, we couldn't figure it out with the schedule. But who cares? You know, we got the show here. So we decided to uh, do a, an individual interview on Planet Microcap. And I'm so excited to have her on here. It is Liz Simi. She is the co-founder and CIO of Honey Tree Investment Management. Liz, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Oh, you know, just another uh, beautiful day in digital LA. You know, uh, I wish I could be in the mountains right now, but uh, or the surf. But hey, you know, we're uh, it is what it is. You know, we'll make it work at some point. So, how, how are you doing? It snowed here yesterday. Where Where are you based? Toronto. Oh, that's right. Of course. Uh, yeah. So the, the the kids were out rolling snowballs all all day instead oh. of school. Oh, that is fun. That sounds like a good time. I mean, I, is, how's everything going in Toronto right now? I, I just talked to another colleague of mine up there, and she said it's uh, it's lockdown. Oh yeah, um, our lockdown is is kind of a soft lockdown. Like you can still, you're not supposed to go to cottages and stuff, but everybody does. You're not supposed to. So we we've we've never had a full lockdown, and and capital markets and investing has always been an essential business. Um, and my husband's work in construction as well. So we, our lives other than school haven't changed very much up here um, other than our, our case rates a lot higher now than it was in the spring. So people are, we're, 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 we're taking it pretty seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Same here. LA, I, you probably seen the news. LA is it's crazy. So it's like, it, yeah, you the, guys, was it last night, yesterday, you went into lockdown restriction. I saw something. Remind me today's Tuesday, right? Then if, if Tuesday, then yes. Yeah, it started yesterday on Monday. Uh, for those who are listening, we're recording this on uh, December 1st. Uh, so yeah, uh, yesterday, November 30th was a little safer at home. But you know what? We got to do what we got to do. You know, and uh, I mean, my uh, I've completely converted to uh, a work from home situation. So we're, we're all right. My, my wife is actually a, a nurse at St. John's. So she's, uh, you know, in the oncology unit, thankfully, right now. But it's, you know, it's, it's scary. It, it You know, you could get a case potentially that comes up, you, they do the test, you never know, they had it, but it's, but she's, she's making it work. And, uh, and, and, and kudos to everybody out there who's listening, who is a frontline worker. We, we, we are fully indebted to you. And, and absolutely. So our task at hand today is I want to get to know Liz Simi a bit more, you know, everything there is no from an investing perspective. You know, so let's start off with with your background. I'd love to know where your passion for investing began. That's a great question because it's, I think, the opposite of most folks. Um, I did a stats, econ stats and history degree in college, which you think would set you up for, you know, the investment industry. But I, I avoided the investment industry. My perception of it was it wasn't changing the world positively. And, you know, you needed to be an old guy in a suit and sit in an office and talk to people. And I don't know, that wasn't appealing. I wanted to do something more exciting and interesting and I guess purpose-driven. And I started my career in quantitative market research, actually. So I, I was one of those people who you got email surveys from or, or focus groups and we did the touchpad sessions um, for, for consumer brands. So, um, you know, cereals, bank products, you name it. Um, and it's funny because it, it wouldn't seem like useful career experience at all for the investment industry when you say market research. But but interestingly, it was kind of four and a half years of foundational research training, quant and qual, and, and it kind of teed up my 
when I got, and I'll explain to you how I got into the investment industry, when I got into the investment industry, it gave me a background in non-investment research, which I think is important um, context for folks when, when I talk about the, the investment strategy that we use. But I, uh, I ended up in the investment industry by accident. Uh, my father founded a firm. So my, I, I ended up working for my father's firm until we founded Honeytree. And his third person, him and, he had him and his co-founder, his third person was American and he got divorced. And so he get, got kicked out of the country. And they needed somebody, I guess, not qualified, but they needed somebody to be that you know junior analyst, junior operations, junior everything person. Um, and I guess they thought of me and uh, asked me to do it. And I thought, well, market research, this was in 2011, market research was you know, it, it was exciting. I love the client aspect and the research aspect, but I, I kind of was looking for options. So I accidentally ended up the third person at a emerging manager. And for those folks, emerging managers, not emerging markets, just a tiny boutique asset manager and got a, got to be part of it from about 50 million in assets up to 1.5 billion when I left. So wow. that's uh that and, and the unique investment strategy that we ran is where all of my investment theory comes from. Um, it, it, you know, before that I, you know, invested, but not, you know, I'm, I was always more of a manager selector. It's easier to, you know, analyze a group of not easier, but it's easier when you don't know what you're doing to analyze a set of managers right. choices. But, but, you know, <laughs> when, you, when you get into the long only equity business, so that's, that's what I was trained in. And that's what, what I do now, the same research principles for from anywhere can apply, we, we tend to do things a very certain way in the investment industry, in all asset classes, based on theory, but that doesn't mean an evidence based approach, which is what we use and, and what we were, you know, trained in, and market research can't work. So that's, that's kind of how I accidentally ended up in the investment industry, spent the first five years kind of wondering, what I was doing, you know, what was interesting and unique, and then figured out a way to take it and take the training I got at, at my dad's firm and turn it into a purpose-driven organization that that truly aligned with everything I believed, not only the quantum mental portfolio construction, which, which we do, but using non-financial information in security selection um, and it, we use it to dig down further in governance. Um, you know, is this leadership team, are they long-term focused and are they sustainably growing everything? And, and this was part of what I was trained in, but at the same time, we weren't an ESG shop and the ESG term is, even though I use it all the time, is problematic. But yeah, that's, that's kind of the accidental story of the quick story of how everything kind of came together and ended up where where we are now there there's so much opportunity in this industry um the gates are very closed i am only here because my dad owned a firm um i i, I make lots of country club jokes but i'm not joking when i make country club jokes there's a lot of regions in the world um toronto is one of them where a lot of hiring happens um, at all levels and all parts of the industry through networks whether it's private school or, or golf courses and so we need to acknowledge that and then we, we need to Absolutely. change that, right? And it's part of our role, somebody like me with that experience to you know, speak out as opposed to just pretend it's not a problem. So with, with all that experience, and I mean, it's really quite impressive. And you know, from going to the market research, going to work with your father's firm, growing that from 50, 50 million to 1.5 billion uh, assets under management, starting your own firm. I mean, 
you know, you, you went in your father's business, so you, you grew up with them, I, I would assume, you know, I, I, what, what was, and you're probably managing your own money throughout this, even before joining his firm. So, you know, what was it about investing and when you were first getting into it that really just got smart, it, it got you, you know, and hooked you? The process that my dad invented is what hooked me, but I thought everybody ran quantum mental strategies that threw out a lot of traditional theory. Um, so what really got me is when I realized how unique that strategy was, which was somewhere in the middle. And, you know, when you talk to large allocators who are very sophisticated and very into process um, for, for concentrated active strategies, they, 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 they help you understand why something's differentiated. So it took, it took, I don't know, four five, six years for me um, to truly understand what was driving out performance in the strategy and why that wasn't, you know, my dad being a genius or his partner being a genius. It was, it was about a new process. It was about a new approach to portfolio construction that removed a lot of the human bias in the active management process. And so even though I'm really passionate about ESG all of the time, all day, every day, um, I'm actually more passionate about that and active management um, long only specifically and, and any size equities, whether large cap or micro, um, is being done poorly. And it's not being done poorly because the market's fully efficient. If the market was fully efficient, um, I'm not saying that's not part of the problem, but the idea that active management underperforms, which has honestly been the narrative for the past 12 years, really drove me into kind of digging and research and understanding, well, so all these managers underperform and some of these managers outperform. It's not just a fluke that all these managers outperform. And I was lucky to be at one of the ones that was actually outperforming. So what drives outperformance and active and it's discipline, staying away from FOMO and high active share um, in the case of large cap long only. And it's nothing else and it's not rocket science, but folks think it is. Um, and all my competitors are um, incentivized to make it sound more complicated than it is. And, you know, there's the derivatives guys and stuff, which <laughs> I, I, I call it funny stuff. Sorry, guys. Um, I just, I, I, it's great. I'm glad lots of people can do it. I cannot, I'm a, I'm a long only investor. So my passion actually was kind of in that, in that middle period where I realized that active management can outperform. Most doesn't. And, and it's really because of index hugging um, and bad decisions and ideas, right. And, 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 instead of process driven and systematized research, it's ideas and essays and, and you know, calls um, and, and no offense to men, but a lot of that comes from the structure of the industry, you know, built around Wall Street and, you know, NBC and, and short termism as opposed to long termism, right? And I'd blame it on women equally if we were 50% of the industry, but we're not. So it's really not our fault. <laughs> um, and, and so, so that's kind of where my passion for investing hit. I would say, you know, I did, um, you know, lots of analyst research and stuff to that point. But for me, it was always a bit big picture in understanding the flaws in the industry, but also the opportunity in the industry. Um, and then, you know, ESG just added on to that. Very cool. All right. So I'm going to get, um, we're going to dive even deeper into some theory and your investment approach and how it's different and understanding better your, your, your uh, definition of quantum mental and how, how that works. But first let's catch us up. Let's catch us up. You know, what then led to your founding of, of honey tree investment management? Well, I met my partner, my co-founder and uh, she's an ESG person. 
So she's been, she was at MSCI um, building at the Canadian market. And then she was actually the first ESG salesperson in the world. So the first person selling ESG data to pensions and managers. Um, and that was like 15 years ago. So I knew nothing about ESG and all this ESG stuff was popping up. And uh, someone from my high school actually introduced us. Um, and we just, we hung out and I, I was interested in ESG, you know, not like just as a, as a data set at that point for, for the old firm. And, and so we met and um, uh, we didn't, you know, concoct a firm right there. But as we, in that period, we were launching ETFs for my old firm. Um, so we're very interested in, I was very interested in, in the product that, that we had at the old firm and how it fit into SMAs in wirehouses. So that was a, a very interesting market for us in the US in addition to active ETFs. Um, and in Canada, just to be clear, ETFs are mutual fund structures. So you don't need to disclose your daily position. So we actually have tons of active strategies in ETFs up here, whereas it's it's far, much farther behind. I'm sure it's going to catch up in the US um, in the next five years, but we folks don't launch a new mutual fund in Canada. They might launch a new mutual fund with an ETF series, but all you know, the the ETFs are replacing mutual funds up here. Anyways. So what was happening is all these big banks, um, Canadian banks, I got to do a disclosure here. They're like U.S. banks. They, they score really high on ESG. They do a lot of activities. When you go to the asset management and the capital market side of the bank, they don't, they don't care about any of that stuff. Um, and so it's like they're, they're, they're all two parts. So the Canadian bank asset managers were launching all these ETFs and they launched a gender equity ETF. Um, uh, a couple months after I met Paula and we were like, this is, there's a problem with this And it was kind of like the NASDAQ. So I don't know if you saw the, the thing today in the NASDAQ, NASDAQ is going to require companies yeah, to have, I saw, I saw you uh, post that. yeah, a woman or racial minority on board or explain why they can't do that. And, and we've had, a, we've had an initiative like that in Canada, but this ETF, um, I'm not going to name which large Canadian bank it's from, because I think they all did it. But it was a gender equity ETF. So it was the most gender equitable companies in Canada. And so it was the two big banks first, which is fine. They're not that bad. And then it had a tech company. And I was super excited. I love looking at top 10 holdings um, of strategies. And in, in the third company, my brother-in-law worked at. And it's a Canadian company. So nobody will, actually, you guys are all microcaps. So you probably would have heard of it, but I won't mention it. And I was so excited because it was the third most gender equitable company in Canada. And so I go to their board. There's only one woman on the board, no racial minorities. I go to the management team and the head of HR is a woman. And I was like, this is BS. Trying not to swear. This is, this is like totally ridiculous. You cannot call this a gender equity ETF for somebody looking to invest in gender equity. If your, your third highest position is a company that absolutely does not care about gender equity. And so it was kind of a series of those products that made us realize we could take the quantumental portfolio construction, the evidence-based one, one that was not tied to traditional investment theory as much as, as many processes. And those processes tend to be tied to shareholder primacy, not stakeholder primacy. We could take that portfolio construction and bring in non-financial metrics equally alongside the financial metrics in both the quant and the fundamental part. And we just kind of clicked one day and we're like, let's figure out how to do this. Cause you know, take some figuring out how to launch an asset management firm, sure. especially up in Canada. 
um, you need a chief compliance officer, not like an appointed one. You need to qualify through the commission. So, um, and it takes a little bit more time and more money up here. Um, but yeah, so we did that and incorporated um, four or five months later and launched uh, after about five months of registration up here. And now we're 18 months into our track record and we're going to do SEC registration um, shortly. Very cool. Well, congratulations. I mean, it, it's for all intents and purposes, a relatively new firm. And it sounds like you guys are, are making some headway and making some noise. So that's great. Yeah, we're, uh, we are, this isn't a word of mouth industry. It doesn't matter if it's retail or the biggest sovereign wealth funds in the world. Um, it, it's a concentrated group of buyers. Uh, and in the, you know, we get asked, not we get asked, we get complimented and we get asked why we, we chose Honey Tree or why we didn't do this under the umbrella of the old firm. And it's branding, right? Branding and positioning uh, are so much more important than anybody, especially in the investment industry, gives it credit for. And so your brand has to be memorable and its purpose has to be differentiated. And and whoever is communicating about it, whether it's us or, you know, word of mouth, needs to be able to share that information in. And so, so many traditional asset managers are branded like gray stone and dark and serious. And that's not the branding that's going to work for the sustainable, you know, investment group. And so we were very, we were very deliberate on that. And we've been very deliberate on, um, you know, our purpose and, and how that fits in. And, and, and it's, it's not just for sales purposes, let's be honest, it's for advocacy, right? We're not just here to, to make a pile of money. We're here to change the way securities are selected and change the way the industry looks. Um, and those are part and parcel. How can you push diversity strategies and not do that with your own firm? And the investment firms are some of the worst in the world, even though we're selling this stuff, right? And, you know, nobody cares about the emissions of an investment firm, but neither do the investment firms, yet we focus so much on it, you know, uh, from an ESG perspective. So it's, it's a very fascinating mess. All right. So that was a perfect segue into our deep dive uh, philosophy investing approach talk. So, you know, you mentioned just now that your goal with Honeytree is really trying to change the way that you approach selecting securities and, and really just trying to make a change for the better from both an ESG perspective and, and using that quantum mental strategy to do so. So, Let's start with the philosophy in general, and then how, and then also define for us what quantum mental means to you and, and that approach. So our basic philosophy is um, to hold the most responsibly growing companies in the world, um, and that's in a highly concentrated, large cap, long only portfolio, about twenty companies. Quantum mental is really an umbrella term. Traditionally, processes are fundamental right? So traditional value, traditional portfolio construction methodologies are fundamental only, even though they use quant inputs, they're considered fundamental deep dive. Quant processes tend to use quant processes. However, you use those, you know, factors is one of the the big ways to do them. But I, the reason it's the best way to describe what we do is because we use quant processes to cut down the universe to a small consideration set pretty quickly very higher quality consideration set and not, not in the factor sense, just in the pool of good companies to invest in. And then we do a further deep dive. So if we stopped at our, at our quant process, it would be a systematic strategy um, because we do the deep dive. 
can't call us fundamental. We do fundamental, traditional fundamental research, but because a chunk of the cut down, not most of our research time because it's designed to be relatively efficient. Yeah. So that's where the quant and fundamental term is. I didn't invent it. Some analyst we were meeting with um, a long time ago at my old firm said, you guys are quantumental. And we're like, sure. Okay. It captures it because we, we didn't, <laughs> we never fit into the proper bucket and, and honey tree still doesn't as well. So when we talk to a consultant, you know, some of the bigger consultants who are more tied to traditional theory, we don't fit in the quant bucket and we don't fit in the fundamental bucket. And, and we are quantum mental. We are in between the two. And so it's, it's the most useful term to describe our, our process. Our process is really just evidence-based um, and it, it's really, it was designed not by me, by my father and his partner to cut down, to, to remove the human bias and security in active security selection. And that came from timing guesses, position sizing guesses, having too many things to follow um, and ideas coming in, right? So if you, if you built a strong stock structure of decision-making rules around whatever part of the process, um, and focus more on long-term, you know, included lots of annual data in addition to quarterly. And, and we're really trying to assess the long-term consistent growth of companies because over the long-term, you want the companies growing most consistently, yeah. not, not in the short-term. And, and that, you know, that doesn't work for everybody's investment philosophy. Some folks are looking for short-term stuff. Um, but in the long-only equity, I mean, you know, that's when, when you're long-term it, focused, that should be the goal. Yeah. It sounds very O'Shaughnessy-esque. You know, I'm, I'm already here. I hear, I can hear Jim in my head right now with, with that disciplined approach of like, here, remove the human bias, get that out of the way. This yeah. is our, this, and, sorry. Yeah. And the only difference between, I guess, us and them is factors are thrown out too. Right. Um, and, 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 and there's a lot of ways to get to where you need to go, but discipline is it because, you know, the, the biggest risk there was there was a study i don't know a couple years ago and it it ran a model fake portfolio manager against actual pm sells and buys and it turns out it it's the the buys folks aren't that bad at in versus like a randomized computer trial but the sell timing the timing of the sell is where so much of the error is added so a, a fake computer model guessed and randomized sell times better than all the portfolio managers. So if you can, if you can make your decisions, your, your sell decisions, especially and your, all your research decisions based on systematized evidence, instead of guesses and hopes and dreams, the closer you will be to, and, and all the steps you can remove from your process, doesn't matter if it's quant or fundamental or, or however you're doing it. The, the more process you can add and the less discretion. And again, you still need humans in art. This is an art and science, no matter what anybody says. The quant guys, quant guys still have an art in their design. It's not some machine, even don't even get me started on machine learning. Um, there's nothing wrong with machine learning, but the idea that there's not human bias in um, the approach is, is, is very, uh, assumes a lot about the world. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, you, you need all the, all, all those parts, but you also need high active share. Um, and that's where the concentration and the, the not looking like the index FOMO, uh, which most of your listeners will know what I'm saying, but I spell it out for lots of people. Fear of missing out is an underrated 
problem in this oh, industry. And guilt, I can guilty. I can tell you one from my marketing and advertising background that there's a lot more science in getting you to FOMO than you realize there is. That's literally like it, it's an underrated aspect in, in because it's a word of mouth in the sales and in, in like me selling to, to RIAs and institutions and stuff, security selection has also become a word of mouth. And so you hear Bitcoin or whatever, or Fang stocks in, in, and I got to watch this firsthand as somebody who was coming in from the outside in, in the, you know, 2014 to 2018, when the Fang stocks were going up, if you didn't own those, you would be panicking because you didn't own them. And the only way to avoid panicking because you don't own them is having a process that's set up to make your decisions. Whereas even the most professional PMs, the most, you know, the, the biggest endowment CIOs were all susceptible to FOMO. So how you integrate removing that from your security selection and your portfolio construction ads. And I'm not saying don't listen to research. I'm saying that the, the, there, there's a, there, there's a, a news premium. There's a popularity premium on a lot of securities at any size. And you can right. just see it in news frequency. You can see it in volume. Um, you can see it in just basic coverage. I mean, one thing that happens in our strategy, cause we're kind of agnostic to all that is we hold a bunch of boring companies that don't have any coverage because it's just not a requirement. And it doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means they're not cool. You're a microcap investor at heart. Then I mean, this is the, let's let's be real. I'm just kidding. Just yeah, kidding. it's it, and it is funny because I think you know there's I think different parts of the industry separate from the traditional let's say large cap or the hedge funds are more likely to be innovative and inventive because they're not tied to as much. I call it Bay Street tradition up here, um, Wall Street tradition <laughs> in the U.S. And so the closer an investor is to that circuit, the, the more biased they're, they're, they're likely to be um, just from news and, and proximity and regularity of conversation to, to, to think that um, to, to, to for the FOMO to impact their decision making. And what Liz is trying to tell everybody right now is she's actually in a cottage somewhere in the middle of the woods. So she is not susceptible to any of that at all. I'm done. <laughs> I'm teasing. <laughs> it's, you know, you have to build a process that, yes. and, and what we do just to go more in the details. So we yeah. start with the whole global index. So I'll be that general. And we have 25 qualification criteria and some's financial, some's non-financial. Um, for example, we use glass door ratings. Um, but we cut out a lot of um, traditional evil stuff like guns and weapons of mass destruction and fraud and things like that. Um, so it is, I say it's a quant process. There's there's a bunch of qual deep dive research in that as well. But we take the universe from thousands and we cut out like dictatorships and stuff to it. And this is over 5 billion, by the way. And we get down to 45 companies. And um, it depends on the year. We kind of range from 43 to 45 and we do this once a year. And so if it's not in that consideration set, doesn't matter what news is going on. We're not adding it. It has to qualify for that consideration set. So that's how we cut out the noise. Um, and so we can look at all the noise relative to our consideration set. But frankly, other than those group, we ignore that. So that's how we we, we use the quant to cut I out see. the FOMO. So, so you, so one, really just one time a year, that's when you do kind of your, 
you you run you run you run the your your system and you see what 45 companies come up and then you decide from there which ones you're going to add so what's your normal per, uh, portfolio per, uh, turnover percentage like how, well, it's only often? been alive for 18 months. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <So> it's, <laughs> it's probably around 25% turnover. Okay. And the same for our consideration set. And we do adjust stuff. Um, you know, we've lowered our market cap requirements. We've lowered some other and increased some other requirements. And that's just our quant part. So we run that once annually in the fall. And that gets us our consideration set. And from there, we're doing our deep dive. And we're choosing the 20 best. Um, and we, we organize our research into pillars. Um, and, and one thing, I guess, that separates us um, from a bunch of how a lot of ESG is done on the sidelines. You have a portfolio manager, and this is at, at many ESG shops. So you have a portfolio manager who's the security selection financials expert. And you have the ESG team who's a separate team who, who are they're not portfolio managers. And they provide research. They look at risk. They have inputs. They, they, they help the PM choose best in sector. But the, the research in, into non-financial inputs is not being done by the same person. So that's, we do, we treat, we treat workforce data and environmental data as fundamental data, um, as fundamental company information. And so we don't have separate people researching it. We don't treat it separately and we don't look at it separately and we don't weight it differently. We think change in diversity year over year and the leadership level is just as important as free cash flow, flow growth year over year. They're both signs of innovation and agility and a company's ability to grow um, and change. So it's that's that's where our deep dive looks a little different because we're we're purposely we're purposely treating the non-financial information as equal. And so we're looking for the best fundamental performers who are also changing the world most positively, making the most net positive impact. Mm -hmm. and, and to be fair in ESG, the best companies in the world still have tons of problems. There is not some miracle company anywhere in the world, no matter how small it is, no matter even private impact investments that can't improve, right? right. Whether that's Governance quality, you know, racial diversity in leadership, reducing their water use, uh, making more money. They everybody can get better. And what we're looking for is really in all of our research: is this company purpose driven, and is that purpose aligned with their stakeholders? Because if it is, that's how they're going to keep on making money. Um, and that evidence for that is the financial year over year. The, the traditional, you know, managing their debt capacities. It's also their their ability to improve women in leadership, because frankly, there's no company in the world that doesn't need to improve women in leadership. Their ability to report on and improve, improve racial diversity in leadership and tech roles and on the executive team. Um, there's all these ways of looking at a company in their, their governance quality that are not financial. Um, and so, you know, folks think bringing in non-financial data is a drag on returns, which is hilarious. Um, but when you when you throw out traditional theory and the idea of shareholder supremacy, the rest of the world, the end buyer to what we're selling, um, believes companies not destroying the world will outperform in the long run. I get that a whole bunch of people don't, don't believe that. But the folks that we're selling to, the, the investors, endowments at universities that study climate change, the, you know, the, the, the pensions 
uh, of mostly female employees, the, you know, the foundations working on racial equity or gender equity, you know, they're doing this for a reason and it's not to feel good. It's to drive economic productivity, mm-hmm. right? When we're all better off, um, when all stakeholders are better off, whether they're employees or customers or supply chain or even shareholders, we all make more money. We, we collect more taxes. It, it all works. So that's not conventional wisdom and in investing. And I understand why not, because not that many folks studied detailed microeconomics. Um, but it's it, 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 the end client understands that. It's just all of our mucky investment industry language that has shifted the focus uh, of governance from stakeholder governance, which is what it always was and intended to be, to shareholder primacy. Um, and there's a variety of you know things that happens and that cause that. But good companies, purpose-driven companies, even the ones that are making tons of money, believe in stakeholder governance. And so that's what we're really trying to identify. And it's not perfect. Like nobody's perfectly stakeholder governed or driven. It's it's the intent in in the evidence that we're looking for of that. All right. Well, I want to I want to take that a step further and learn a little bit more about some of the things that you're looking for. You know, look, when it comes to ESG, I think we can all agree it's a spectrum and it's really something that unfortunately, but actually fortunately too, you're starting to see more companies start to really pay attention to it. And, and, but as, as you just said, even with the companies that you have in the portfolio that you look at, there are still issues. So for you, what, what are some of those things in particular um, that you look for when you're considering a potential investment of the 45 and then you're trying to narrow it down? We use, how many is it? 52 inputs in our deep dive. That's so it. Yeah. So a lot of them have multiple points in them too, but we, 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 that's the, the total inputs. Um, and some are quant and some are qual. Um, some are multi-part, some are very simple. Um, and, and we organize, we organize them into, to these pillars and we assign, we assign ratings for each pillars. And so we're really, um, we're really just, uh, we're, ESG, let me back up. ESG data is a mess for two reasons. One, it's separated from the financials. That will not be true in five to 10 years. It will be reported in the financials too. Um, A lot of it is BS. So if you, uh, the data that we use, quant and qual, generally goes around workforce data. So that could be anything from diversity to turnover, to parental leave, to um, pay equity, to, to, to various workforce data and in environmental inputs and outputs. Stuff doesn't fit into those two buckets, but that covers the main set of data. So that could be hazardous waste, recycled inputs, you know, commuting, that kind of stuff. The problem, and in, in where we're kind of lucky, is the data sets lag behind for two reasons. For the opportunity. The standardization is slow and fast and varies by continent. And I'll give you some examples of that. And folks don't know what to do with it. So the best example is racial diversity data. So when we started in 2018, um, and I we had looked at the ESG data sets, and this is still true to today, board diversity is only measured at the gender level. So there are very few ESG data points in the world right now that are you could buy that take into account racial diversity. 
at any level, board, management team, leadership, uh, employment. What's interesting is most American companies have to report this stuff. So in, in about a year or two, nobody's in the U.S. anyway is going to have an excuse. There's a California employment filing that they have to do that has to break out um, employee racial and gender diversity by level. It's pretty cool when you come across it on some websites. And so that reporting in California is actually driving disclosure in the U.S. So when we started in 2018, I'd say maybe half of our companies in our consideration set were reporting racial diversity. Um, in addition, they were all reporting gender at some level. Now they're all reporting racial and gender diversity. And so, you know, we're not holding companies that need shareholder votes to get them to report diversity. Let's be honest, that's a whole other side of the ESG industry. Um, we're holding companies that are leaders in this reporting and they're not leaders in this reporting because it makes them feel good. <laughs> they're leaders in this reporting because they believe this data is fundamental company data. They believe their performance on employee turnover and pay equity is fundamental to their company performance. They believe making all of their products with recycled materials is good for the bottom line and for sales um, and for the environment, um, not exclusive of each other. So there's this cat and mouse game going on with regulation, people like me who want data, companies providing data in, in the standardization of that data. Um, and, and where it's going is the big four accountants are gonna figure out how to charge it on audits and double their audit billing. And I can say this is because I've read a whole bunch of annual reports where EY and others have done the full audit of the ESG disclosure. So it, it, we're five or 10 years away, but right now there's a whole bunch of bodies everywhere trying to standardize the data. The data is going to come standardized out of US, U.S. requirements. Canada doesn't care about diversity. EU sort of cares about gender diversity. They don't care about racial diversity. Um, so two years ago, it wasn't clear the U.S. was driving reporting and data. Now it is. In, but what we do is we build custom data sets. So even though we can't buy quant or qual any research um, on racial diversity, the data is there in the companies that we're looking at. So and that, that's one of the benefits the ESG providers have to rate 3,000 companies, right? How do you standardize it when there's only 800 reporting? Whereas we're only looking at 45 and basically they're all reporting it. So we're, we have an advantage in that, you know, kind of we're looking at the next generation of reporting. We're building our data sets from that. So it could be um, on the non-financial side, you know, we, we look at executive team diversity as a total number. So gender plus racial diversity. We look at women in leadership year over year, racial diversity in leadership year over year, how that's changing, right? We want to see change, right? It's not about some absolute number for any of this stuff. It's, are they making progress? Everybody needs to make progress. Believe me, there's, there's no companies in the world that don't need to make progress on, even if you've made progress on gender diversity, let's say you're at 40% you know, woman in the workforce, are you above 20% woman in leadership? How are those roles part-time versus full-time divided? And, and it's not, and it's not because we feel good. It's because change, setting goals and achieving them demonstrates a competent board. And, and I don't, I don't and nobody, nobody tells me I'm wrong when I say that because it's very intuitive, but folks in the traditional investment industry have a hard time figuring out what to do with that data insecurity selection.
right? And, and you know, we're one, the data is not there, right? It's not necessarily available. It's just even below the board level beyond gender, it's not standardized, right? So you can't just buy a data set and rank your whole, you know, you have to do a lot of digging, but we do the digging because we know it's going to be standardized in the fundamentals. And it's not just the auditors that, that tell me that they don't tell me that I can see that they're charging for it and, and doing the real audit. It's the company. So now you see combined or integrated annual reports, especially out of Europe, but you're seeing it in the US now where they take workforce information. So not employee volunteer hours or ERGs or you know donated items. They take the actual workforce data and the actual environmental data and they report it in the annual report alongside the financials. Not as an appendix, not as a separate document, as part of the annual report. Um, so it, it'll be very interesting. And I didn't, I didn't understand that when I started because I didn't come from ESG. Um, but it's been uh, the the speed with which the data availability is changing. And this is it is absolutely part half these big companies jumping on the CSR bandwagon and looking to fill out surveys and get high scores. Like we're looking at something, an ESG rating. We we, we look at them all. They all have problems. We're looking at one last week. And one of the categories under, I don't know, E, I, I must have been under S was awards one for sustainability. And I was like, this is ridiculous. You should get no points whatsoever for winning an award for sustainability. But because of how these ESG data sets were built separate from the financial data sets, they've kind of taken a, a life of their own. And you know, if you don't have robust workforce reporting, which they never really had until this, this U US reporting showed up, what do you do with it, right? So you come up with all these other ways. And anyway, so we're in a really cool evolution of data. It's kind of like if you go back 15 years to financial data being standardized and yep. available, it, we're kind of there. It's a different problem because the financial statements were already standardized. Mm -hmm. But so for us, it's more of an organization standardized. But as soon as that happens, it'll be it will think of the data very differently um, as an industry. So, it, so for those who are listening right now that may really uh, may not consider ESG yet, maybe want to, but just don't even know where to start. You know, as you said, you have your own organizational customized data sets that you use to help when you're evaluating. You know your own ESG scores for your investable universe. So what would you say of the, I'm, I, I know you said all of them are equally weighted, but what would you say are, are, are some examples that maybe some individual retail investors that might be listening to this right now could maybe look for and assess for themselves? I think, so one of the big problems with ESG data is it trails off a lot as you get lower down in the market cap and X US and X Europe, which even impacts our research in, in larger cap um, international and even in some less covered stuff. So we have companies that just didn't get on this, the reporting bandwagon until recently. And so their, their scores are lower. So I would suggest there's to build your own data set. Um, so you go to the company website, figure out what their purpose is, understand if sustainability has even hit their radar. Um, I'm pretty sure it has. Everybody's got a sustainability subsection. Look at their sustainability report. I have directed a number of smaller cap and micro cap investors. Most companies have this or a web page or or something, and it'll it'll explain to you 
Um, it, it could be 6,000 pages. It could be, it could be a hundred words, um, but it'll explain to you where they are in their journey. Um, in, 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 as, as, a, as a, from a board perspective, because this stuff is, this stuff is about the, the board. And I say it's about the board when I say it's about the whole organization. So it's not about the CEO doing one thing. It's, it's board initiatives in, you can look at the board diversity. If it's a tech company, it's going to be awful. Um, you can look at the management team diversity, but really you're not going to get any access to ratings or third-party stuff as soon as you get kind of under the $5 billion market cap. But it's really, I think you're going to see a lot of company reporting along stuff like this. And some companies have always been doing this properly, but they haven't reported it. So you have to be very, very conscious of that unless they are in an industry or a country where it's been mandated and pushed. It's okay if they're not reporting a bunch of this stuff, especially if they're smaller, but you can get a, a pretty good sense from company reporting um, of all sorts, even, even their website um, of what role long-term focus and sustainable growth fit into their organization. If a company short-term and not focused on long-term sustainable growth, who cares how many women or racially diverse folks they have on their board? Who cares how much water they've, you know, saved? It, it, what you're really looking for to do it right, to use this data in addition to financials to, to find companies that are long-term outperformers, it, it has to be ingrained in their purpose. Um, and, and their purpose, it's, it's really simple. Their purpose, their, which usually is pretty clearly stated by any company in, in any of their stuff, ties into their stakeholders. So they're doing X for their stakeholders, as opposed to we're the best and the biggest company in the world. Um, and so it comes down to, you know, even when analysis we did in April, we just took the first two paragraphs from everybody's quarterly report. And then we compared it to like the top 10 or 15 by cap weight in the, in the index. And uh, all of our companies were employees, 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 clients, 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 and everybody else didn't mention employees and clients, right? So there's so many simple ways, um, but it comes from what your goal is, right? And our goal is to hold stakeholder governed long-term focused companies. So it's easy to, to look at the data through that lens. And so I think that's, that's what folks miss is why, like you, you have to define the why you want to use this information or why you want to invest. Um, and I think for the average, you know, even you know the the guys who are portfolio managers in this industry, even they understand long term sustainability and long termism and and the benefit of that. And and so it's it's stakeholders are is not a popular term in investing, right? And I think I think as the industry evolves and changes and matures, it will be. Um, but I, I like to think of it mostly from a from a stakeholder perspective. It, are they serving their stakeholders? If they're serving their stakeholders, they'll continue to make money in a purpose-driven way um, with less impact. Um, and you know that's another thing. These companies make huge impact. Uh, there's this idea that you can only impact invest in private investments. A company employing half a million people makes a huge impact, underpaying a thousand of them, you know, only providing part-time hours to 50,000 of them. So they don't qualify for medical benefits. That's a cost. The company doesn't have to pay for it, but the rest of us do. Um, so it's, it, it, it's, it, anyway, so think big picture and then worry about the data in, in the research, the companies 
and be very skeptical of um, checkbox exercises um, and in rating systems, you know, there's some really interesting rating systems that are, that are okay, but again, they're mostly large cap. And so even, you know, we can't use any of them for our strategy because we get into the kind of mid cap and, and global stuff. No, what I appreciate so much about your strategy is ESG is the whole aspect of ESG is very important, but it seems like the G for you is probably the most important. Yeah. And in my new thing is F. So financials plus social, so workforce data plus environmental data. So E S E plus S plus F equals G. And, and that comes from, I mean, that is the crux of our strategy, which is well-governed companies are purpose-driven and long-term focused. Therefore, we want to invest in them. And so we, you know, workforce data is fits under the S, but I think it's governance data. But I also think the financial data is, governance data, right? You're assessing the long-term consistent growth in our case of this company. So it really speaks to governance and, and governance is, you know, if you were quantifying the impact of governance in an academic sense, it would be turnover, right? Not of the board, who cares about turnover of the board, it would be turnover of senior leaders, right? Uh, it would, it would bring in financial, it would bring in um, the, the workforce characteristics, it would, you know, measure against goals set and achieved. So it, 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 it all overlaps. And that's why ESG lumping everything into three little silos separate from the financials is a problem, even though I'm going to use the term forever. Um, but it, 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 it's, ESFG, so it's, a little, it's a little bit of a tongue twist. We got, we got to get that. We got to get that into the mainstream. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I talk about it a lot because you're right. It is, it does all feed into governance and in, in, Governance is underrated, but a lot of really good portfolio managers have been looking at governance. They wouldn't look at, let's say, diversity data because there would have been none reported 10 years ago. But they're, if they see turnover, if there's pay equity issues, lawsuits related to you know senior folks leaving and things like that, that's all S, right? They were already looking at that. In, in, so it's not, it's not that we're just kind of co-opting uh, the stuff that fits our financial model. It's that companies are more than their financial metrics. Like, and, and so only looking at financial metrics misses the whole story. Um, and, and, you know, we're folks get to different end goals with it, but it's really for us that the long-term responsible growers and how do we use this data wherever it comes from um, to assess that. Very good. So, uh, the the one of the main reasons I kind of asked that is because at um at, on the panel that I did back in August where we had uh, Garvin J. Bush, Phil Kirschman, Lisa Hales on, where we it was kind of like an ESG one on one, you know, for 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 geniuses like me, and um, y- you know, one of the questions I had for them was, you know, it it especially when you're trying to wrap your head around it at the beginning when you're first like, okay, I want my I want to invest in a way where I feel like I'm. I'm doing good for the world. I'm investing in companies that are, you know, um, really creating a bright future for all of us, you know, whatever that the case may be for that individual. Right. And, you know, we were, we were talking about in, in the, in the context of, you know, sometimes with, with various sectors out there where, you know, not necessarily, you know, taking out, taking away like, uh, you know, cigarettes and, and gun manufacturing and all that stuff like that. Let's push that aside for now, but let's talk about, you know,
know, just uh, uh, mining or minerals extraction companies in order to fund some of these uh, electric vehicle companies in order for a sustainable future. You know, it, it seems like it. You could you could just go in uh, circles and circles when you're when if that is your primary focus and not really paying attention to the SF and G aspect. You know, you could just get completely lost. So for you, you know, how, how does, how do you weigh that E aspect when you're looking at the various sectors for your investable universe? Well, we added a net zero commitment as one of our deep dive inputs this year. And we knew it was going to be interesting because it means a lot of different things to a lot of different companies and and people. But there's this idea that you can reduce your emissions a bit and then you can pay somebody to offset them, which I, I guess works. But if, if if we're measuring, if a company has to pay for their solid waste disposal, if they have to pay in certain regions in the world for their carbon credits, if they have to pay higher healthcare taxes because they're making everybody sick, it should be in their interest to, to um, truly reduce their environmental outputs. Um, so the E, the E is really messy and, and we come at it from an evidence-based, um, evidence-based approach. Everything has fossil fuel in it. There is not a company in the world that doesn't have fossil fuel, whether it's plastic, commuting, transport, buildings, plane travel, shipping, actual plastic making, actual extraction. So this idea, and we're a fossil fuel free strategy, by the way, but I say no company in the world is without fossil fuel, (laughs) is fossil fuel free. So that's how messy it is. And some of the stuff is systematizable and some of it's not. Um, What's been most interesting, I think, since we started is everybody's been working on reducing their water use. Everybody's been working on reducing their emissions or, you know, their emission ton per, you know, million dollar in revenue is kind of the standard measure of that. But that's just emissions and water. Like what about products inputs? What about shipping container size? One thing um, that I think does not get enough appreciation, it certainly does not show up in any ESG rankings is if I have a product and it fits on a slat, right? Ships and boats across the world. And I can make, and I can go from a hundred units to 130 units on that shipping. Not only do I make more money, it costs, I can ship way more, right? For the same emissions the, in the, you know, it doesn't count towards your company the, as much the shipping emissions. But so, so there's all these things we can do. And I'll come to the electric vehicle question in a second in a company. But since we focus on just, just the big things that everybody does, the important stuff like recycled inputs, right? There are a lot of clothing manufacturers who've gone, oh crap, in the last couple of years, not only is this stuff expensive, like virgin materials, um, our supply chains are a disaster. We can't figure out where any of this is. People are making us audit these supplies chains. So there, there's a whole bunch of incentives to get them to shift to 100% recycled inputs. So 100% of their products, clothing products, will be made of reused material. That's a huge shift, right? We see the same thing in food containers, right? So food containers, recycled inputs wouldn't make any ratings, but if, if a large paper manufacturer can start making styrofoam out of hundred percent recycled inputs, as opposed to new material, that's a huge impact on the environment. So 
that's how messy it is. And it's just super messy. And your question is right. It's just messy with EVs. One of the things that bothers me the most in our industry, the sustainable investment industry is the most efficient is cycling, walking and public transportation. So why aren't we advocating for any of that? Right. And I'm not saying single driver electric vehicles are bad. I'm just saying if this is about a livable, environmental, breathable future planet, if we do care about people and stakeholders, there's a place for individual cars, no matter how um, badly the extraction destroys the environment to get the, the battery metals out. In, in, but we, we kind of blindly support those EVs as future hope. And we, we don't even think about hydrogen and things like that as much when, in fact, it's a much bigger question of commuting, employees working from home, urban planning systems. You know, I, in my history degree, and I'll just throw the U.S. under the bus because it was a U.S. history, but this happened globally. You know, you have corporate interests sidelining public initiatives for all of history, Right. Whether you go to the electric car, whether it's streetcars everywhere that were electrified, that got pulled out by the 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 oil companies and the car companies who wanted to sell more cars and and and, and not compete with the 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 electrified you know, trams everywhere in the U.S. So we've done this all this time. And I'm not saying, you know, Tesla's in there or whatever to to to, you know, uh, steal from from subways. But sometimes in our investment industry, we live in a bubble right? Where everybody um, has their own car. Everybody isn't, you know, it, it, we forget that there's regular people, right? We forget that not everybody owns stocks, right? I think it's like 60% of the US, similar in Canada, don't uh, don't have any investments, let alone individual stocks. It might be less, actually. Yeah, it might be less. And, and you know, we, we all think everybody has retirement accounts when in fact, a lot of people live off of their pension, like the, what do you guys, social security um, and CPP up here. And so, if, if we're really here, if these companies that we're investing in and if our industry is really here to be more sustainable, you know, we need to, it needs to stop being about product solutions and it needs to go bigger, right? How is the whole system changing? And, and we really saw, we saw a lot of sustainable strategies not being able to capture that. They were getting credit for, companies get credit for, you know, the tick box, the, the, the activities they do that fit into the boxes that, you know, end up in these ratings. And there's so much change um, that, that companies can make, even just hiring veterans, right? Having, having diverse supplier programs, realizing you're spending $10 million a year, but it's all with white male-owned businesses. Well, we can, we can, we can, as part of our procurement process, we can ensure that more Revenue flows to businesses owned by women, businesses owned by minorities. And so there's there's all these things we can do. And it's it, to think of it, and that's one of the problems with ESG is it limits it to that set of criteria and data sets, whereas it's really about systems change. It's really about the long-term sustainable growth of the world. And there's a place for everything, but we have to critically evaluate it and be very conscious that there's often a marketing hook and a conflict of interest driving the, you know, the popularity or the uptake of something. Yep. I couldn't agree more. It's definitely more of a system change that I think is, uh, is what we really need to see. But we're now at that point in the interview that I have, I, I, it's, this is my favorite question to ask everybody that I have on here. So it's, uh, what would you say is an invent? Oh, by the way, you did mention Tesla. Are you currently a shareholder in Tesla? 
Okay, good. All right. She for those listening to the audio version, she is shaking her head. Uh, no. no. <laughs> okay, there we go. All right, and so now my favorite question: what, what what would you say is an investing experience that impacted you the most thus far in your career? Like related to security selection or so anything related to security selection, um, experience at any of the firms you worked at, uh, yeah, anything. Meeting your partner, you know. Yeah, that too. I mean, that, I, that, that, I mean that's a given. I'm right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was that was kind of a big trigger. Um, I think, I think it was launching ETFs, and I say that not because of the ETFs. Not no, when no, we don't have honey tree ETFs yet. One day. Um, it, it was not that we did ETFs or learning about ETFs. It was kind of, um, it was where everything came together in uh, kind of my learning products, portfolio construction, and ESG all kind of intersected. And we had, we had just kind of built out or begun to build out a, a large SMA platform like we were on one of the big wirehouses in in the US and had built that out in and it was kind of just uh uh perfect timing of of the market opportunity right for concentrated active strategies and or ESG strategies and an understanding of vehicles and I'm a big picture thinker um, and sometimes that means I'm a slow learner and sometimes I, I need a bunch of things to kind of come together. And so the fact that I met my partner before that and everything kind of the opportunity, the, the problems in the industry all kind of click together. And I think, you know, I think there's, I think you're driven by purpose best when you're trying to solve a problem. Um, and, and so that really kind of was the changing point. We, we realized there was a problem and it came not just from ESG being a bunch of greenwashing fake products, but from, uh, we can be a solution. You know, this is, this is how the industry is changing. You know, everybody says active is dead. You know, arguably all small firms are dead. Um, but there'll always be, you know, the idea that everybody's only going to eat at Chipotle and not a, I don't own Chipotle, <laughs> that everybody's going to eat at Chipotle and not at a local Mexican restaurant is hilarious. There'll always be a huge demand for local boutique, more specific products. And so that that's kind of our, you know, it is a marketing learning. I mean, I think most things are marketing in the world too. Um, we, I think in the investment industry, we don't talk about marketing enough um, or, or, or advertising. But it was that that filling that all the learning that I'd had to that point hitting hitting us with here's how we can solve a problem here's our purpose um, and so it was both the portfolio construction and the marketing in the industry as a whole and the ESG all coming and that's where Honey Tree came from um, otherwise we we probably wouldn't be here if all you know if we hadn't had that set of experiences at that time. Very cool. Well, we're there at that point in the interview. I want to keep going, but I think, uh, you know, we could fill up another couple hours with, with everything that I want to ask. But um, with that, where can my audience go and find more information about you, Honey Tree, follow you, as well as follow you on social media? Yeah. So I rant most about ESG on Twitter. 
Um, I try and do it on LinkedIn. Nobody cares very much. There's a whole bunch of other reasons there. So Twitter, my handle's at Liz Simi, L-I-Z-S-I-M-M-I-E. Um, you can check out our website. We will be SEC registered in the new year. Um, so we are not holding out to Americans right now. Um, but you can check out our website at honeytreeinvest.com. Um, and there's some contact info there. And if you want to sign up for, we have a monthly letter um, that is not 86 pages of investment performance. It's a little lighter hearted that you can sign up for there. Um, and I'm pretty good at, as long as you're not selling me something on LinkedIn and accepting connections. So feel free to find me there. <laughs> Very cool. Liz, thank you so much for joining me today. This was an absolute pleasure. I learned a lot today. I learned a lot about your thesis and the way that you look at potential new investments. And I hope everyone listening did too. So with that, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, I look forward to our next chat. Thank you. It was great. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.